Hello, everybody. Happy week. Hope everybody's doing great. Episode 21, we are back. Chris is back uh, with his buddy, Christian Skonberg, uh, somebody that you'll hear he's known for a while. They met in treatment, and Christian joins us to talk not only about his story of recovery, but his very personal story uh, more recently with OCD. Mental health is a huge part of the stigma associated also with recovery. Sometimes it's not, but we love to bring it into this conversation because there is crossover, but also because as we've mentioned before, Faded is about so much more than just recovery um, and addiction. It is about all of the things that we all go through that we generally keep behind closed doors. So Christian's uh, very personal story uh, is hugely helpful for us in this episode. We really hope that those of you out there that that have struggled with mental health, whether you have also struggled with addiction or alcoholism or not, that this will be helpful um, and relatable for you to hear. We go through uh, Christian's early age anxiety, um, again, the the, uh, look back uh, in the early stages of OCD that he was not aware of at the time, Uh, his key relationships, some of the more influential people in his journey, um, good and bad, Um, his first experiences with with drugs, and then his battle, honestly, with uh, spirituality and the God factor, as he mentions. Uh, This is a jam-packed episode. It's a little bit longer than normal, but we wanted to absolutely give weight to the mental health side of things. That happens uh, in the second half of this episode. So we really hope you get a lot out of this. Um, We are so thrilled to have Christian uh, join us in this episode again. And as we've continued to mention, we cannot wait to continue these conversations with new topics, answering as many questions as we can for you. Uh, And in the meantime, um, thank you for joining. As always, thank you again for continuing to tune in. Christian, thank you for being part of this. Uh, We can't wait to have you back soon. And uh, everybody, enjoy episode 21. Hey. 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 What up? What is up? How are you? Good. This is exciting. I know. I'm this so is exciting. Happy. Christian, uh, for episode 21, welcome to Faded Podcast. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Excited. <laughs> awesome. And Chris, as always, I sound like a broken record, but welcome back. Glad to have you as always. Glad to be here still. <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, all right. So we're taking a break from Masters watching coverage, which I can't believe we, we scheduled this during the Masters. But you know what? There's bigger fish to fry. Um, so Christian, we want, uh, we know you've been listening to Faded. Um, we're so excited to have you here today to tell your story. Um, so you've kind of known the drill of how this works and what we talk about, but, uh, we'd love to get started on who you are. Um, you know, give us a bit of background on, um, just, you know, your, your childhood growing up as we usually do so that the audience can have that context and then we'll get into uh, some questions. So tell us about you. That sounds great. Yeah. So. I'm originally from uh, Houston, Texas, and for Houston snobs, I'm actually from Cypress. It's a suburb <laughs> on the northwest side of town, and uh, I grew up in a you know middle class, upper middle class neighborhood. Uh, mom and dad are 
still married today and they're wonderful people. My mom is a school teacher, dad is an engineer, and uh, my childhood was like the best. I, I couldn't have asked for anything else, you know, neighborhood to run around in, a lot of, you know, good sports programs, uh, good schools. So like everything was like picture perfect as a child for me, which I think defers from other people's stories. A lot of people are able to kind of go back and, you know, look at this thing and be like, oh, this is where things really took a turn, this trauma or, you know, things like that. I, I just don't really have anything that happened externally that caused me to turn out the way that I did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I will say that as I, even as a young kid, I was just weird. Like I, <laughs> in elementary school, like, convinced myself that the outer world was just, like, a projection of, like, my mind, like, mm -hmm. that nothing was real, you know, um, and I think, like, looking back that at an early age, I started, like, suffering with anxiety a lot, a lot of social anxiety, and just waking up nervous and not knowing why, and I think that that was kind of, like, a defense mechanism for me you know, to like justify like, yeah, it's going to be okay. Nothing's real anyways, type of thing. So like, I was just always like off as a kid. And how, and then, like, what, what age was that? I mean, when you say like, when you were like a kid, is that like really young? Like, can you remember as far I back think as like fourth, like fourth grade elementary okay. school years, Okay. you know, and then, and then to, you know, I'll skip ahead to my freshman year of high school because I think it's a lot more relevant. And that's, that's when, my anxiety and like spiritual sickness uh, started ramping up a lot. Like I, my normal routine before school every day as a freshman was like, get up, get in my car, drive up to the school building. And then I would literally like start shivering. And mm. it was, it was like a, this new thing and I didn't understand it at all. Uh, I remember like not feeling okay until my first class started and I could finally like sit down and then this wave of like, okay, you made it, you're here. And it's, it's weird because I can't tell you like what I was nervous about, what I was scared of. All I know is that other people in school seem to be getting through life like so effortlessly, you know, and like I've heard it put that it, it kind of seems like other people have like a manual for life. And mm -hmm. I feel like I didn't have that, like I was missing something. And uh, I was, I was pretty open about it with my mother and, you know, we went and saw psychiatrists and, and I started learning about what anxiety was, but nothing, no like therapy or, or medic, you know, typical medication uh, at that time was giving me any relief. And so it's just kind of something that I like, you know, I was like, I have it. Um, I don't really understand it. it. It sucks, but you know, it is what it is. And, uh, and getting, getting, you know, further into my freshman year, I became really good friends with another guy. I played tennis and in, in high school and, and I became really good friends with a guy on the tennis team. And uh, me and him, we we hit it off really well. And I think that it's because we were both 
suffering with the same thing, you know, like this unspoken, like just feeling out of place and not okay, watching the clock during class, like crawling out of my skin, cannot sit still, pay it, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. something. Regardless of how bad or regardless of how good or amazing your external life is internally, you're just oh, kind yeah. of lost and falling apart. Yes. Yes. Very unfulfilled and yeah, lost. And so me and him hit it off really well. And so I, you know, I'd go over to his house as his, he had a, a single mom and a, and a there was he, there was a six year old little brother, and his mother was like young, really cool, like really easy to talk to, you know, very personable, kind of had like a salesy type personality, like you just loved her when you met her, and so I would kind of I, I more so kind of like looked at her as like a big sister almost, you know. And uh, I would go, I would talk to her about how things were going at school, relate, you know, everything I'd opened up to her. And, you know, we started having conversations about my anxiety and it's, she was just able to empathize so much mm-hmm. with what was going on and relate to it and uh, kind of under, under the wraps. And, and I was a little bit oblivious to it, but she was addicted to painkillers at the time. Uh, in Houston, like before 2010, there was a big epidemic with like crooked doctors and people being able to go shop for hydrocodone pills, somas, and it was, it was crazy, but Mm -hmm. she had that going on and it had been like a lifelong struggle of hers. So, uh, me and her son, you know, tried smoking weed for the first time and we, she caught us basically. And to kind of get into that experience for me, weed like exaggerated my anxiety times 10. Like it, it did not, I, but there were also brief intervals of like being able to see the world through a different lens, think outside of the box, and it also kind of gave me like a sense of community, you know, mm-hmm. and so there were there were positives to marijuana, but it overall it it like did not really help with my condition at all. Yeah, put you um, on a roller coaster. But <laughs> it put me on a roller coaster, but it, like once I started smoking weed, I smoked weed every day, all day. Yeah. To the point where I was I was working my first job at Shalotsky's Deli and over the course of six months probably robbed them for two grand, just a twenty out of the register every night so that I could buy a gram of weed and be able to sleep. You know, mm-hmm. so like the stealing money for weed is just not normal. <laughs> that is not but normal. I guess yeah, for, it, for a real deal drug addict, I guess that's just par for the course. It's real. I yeah, it, when somebody's like in treatment for marijuana, I I'm all for it because when I was smoking weed, I was a drug addict and full blown addiction. Mm. You know, um, so I I used weed. I abused it big time and was addicted. I think I was addicted to it mentally at least. Um, so yeah, we start smoking. We, we get caught by my friend's mom and, and her attitude is like, y'all are kids. Y'all are going to do stupid things. I'd rather you do it and the safety of my household type thing. So what that turned into is like, 
his house became the party house where mm. all the kids were free to come without judgment, without fear of consequences and like let loose is what the kind of environment was, which was great for, you know, until it got really dark. Um, so, and, and then I, I started learning about her demons and her dealing with, you know, uh, abusing her medication and, and there, you know, the AA book talks about like these, I don't know how they word it, but like these signs, like you see these things, um, like Bill sees the gravestone of the alcoholic that died, not by the gun, but by the bottle or whatever it says. And I remember seeing my friend's mom on the couch, uh, going through withdrawals from mm. her pain meds and, and, you know, I was smoking weed every day, but I, you know, she's under the covers, like, aching and like she has the flu and I was just like that's out of control like I am never gonna end up like that like that's you know I remember I mean? like, vividly was, when I was I was 16 years old and I, I always hung out with older people I think they were like 18 or 19 and there was this one guy who I still talk to and he's like very productive member of society and a great guy but he was kind of like the quote-unquote burnout of the group and would always experiment with drugs. And I remember telling like four of our friends in, in his basement one night, I was like, man, he's going to end up being the heroin addict of the group when I was like 16. And then like a year later I was doing heroin and it's just kind of amazing how you can, you can say these things and really mean them and expect them. And then, I mean, if you're a real addict or a real alcoholic, you're a real addict or a real alcoholic. It's, mm -hmm. There's no you know, it doesn't discriminate. And it's kind of like you watching your friend's mom who who you know, I've met detox and you're like, I will never do that to myself. And then what was it like three years later, you were going through the same thing? <laughs> oh God, probably a month after that. Yeah, our, <laughs> yeah, our exactly. are very, are very oblivious, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so what, what it was to speed things up, what happened was it, you know, one of our normal conversations between me and my friend's mother of like, you know, I'm miserable at school turned into like, well, why don't you try some of these? And it, mm -hmm. it was two blue hydrocodone pills. And uh, I was like, you know, my buddy had already tried some other friends in the group had already tried them and you know they said it was great and so I took them and and put them in my pocket and saved them for school the next day is this is the mom and, that uh, offered these to you yeah wow yeah yeah and like I was talking to uh my fiance about this story like how it all got started and that she like had a very emotional response to this woman like enabling me and and pretty much like handing me the keys you know and i i truly think that she was trying to help like i don't think that she was trying to hurt me i think that she knew what worked for her and she was trying to offer me a solution i don't blame her for anything well you know i'm i'm gonna check myself too because she was sick as well so it's like it, yes she was world that yes. we talk about like she she's not you're right she wasn't trying to hurt anybody that's just that's just where she was in her in that headspace right it's like she's not controlling yeah. that <laughs> yeah 
She was yeah, sick, just and, like and, just like anyone else. Yep, and and yeah, honestly, and she may have helped you blurred. get to the place where you needed to get to quicker. You know, and people may For disagree sure. with that, but it sounds to me like you were an addict from the start, and it was kind of inevitable that you were going down one path or another, and that just kind of got you there yeah. quicker. I don't know. Some people may disagree with that, exactly. but yeah so so i take these two pills to school the next day and it's my normal routine of severe anxiety physically just not okay getting into my first period class uh remembering oh i've got these two pills in my pocket and taking them and i take those pills and when they hit me i it was like my first thought was I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like it, mm-hmm. I immediately had a solution to everything that I, I could think of. Like things I didn't even know were wrong were now fixed. Uh, I was in math class. All of a sudden math became super interesting. My mm-hmm. grades started going up, you know, the bell rings. I'm walking through the hallway, like able to like, talk to people, look people in the eye, and just, like, be at peace. Um, Hmm. It was a very, I I think it was, like, I consider it to be a very profound spiritual experience is what happened. Um, And so I, uh, you know, moving forward, like, I would take some and then try to, like, space it out enough to where my body wouldn't get physically dependent on them. And probably within the first two weeks, three weeks of taking them, I was trying to go to bed one night and, like, felt, like, the lightning in my legs where, like, I was just uncomfortable tossing and turning and it, like, hit me, like, oh, like, this is withdrawal. This is what withdrawal symptoms feel like. And I I immediately took a fix. And I think from that day forward for, you know, four years, I I didn't go a day without it. Um, so it, I was off to the races completely. Jackie, how many times have and, we heard on here? I think I think I even said it myself. Like the first time you take it and actually feel that that effect from opiates, it's other drugs, too, but a lot of opiate addicts literally say word for word i am i can't imagine not doing this for another day for the rest of my life because or, it, it feels so good you know i have arrived i, I couldn't just, I, I have arrived exactly I, I couldn't imagine why other people weren't doing it yeah that's what that's i thought too I when i was at. doing it i have a, that's like, why it's such I, a dangerous like, thing you know. I, yeah, I have a question for you guys too. It's, Chris, it's so funny that you just brought that up because that was that was exactly my reaction was we have literally heard this in every single story that we've told. It is the same, if it's not the exact same few words, it's the same line essentially. And like, my question for you guys is that is so universally the same. How are we not noticing that more around us? Maybe most people just aren't looking for that but in your experiences when you guys had that moment how many people if anybody knew about that like is that something when you go through and you're like oh my god like this is my thing like I have arrived like do you tell somebody that is that something that you keep pretty personal I guess what I'm getting at is I'm 
I find it so simple that like, I feel like, could we recognize that a bit more somehow? I might be going off the rails here, but like, I'm just curious about what your experience is, if that's personal or if that's something you share. Well, I, I think to, to answer your question, like I, my first, you know, experience with opiates was like in line with all of my friends in that group and really only a couple of us got addicted to it and then others were able to take it with impunity or just like it wasn't like this profound thing with them but like my bud my best friend uh you know we i like we definitely confided with each other like dude this is amazing right you know Mm -hmm. I, it wasn't a secret between us, but I didn't necessarily like blast it from the rooftops that, you know, this, this stuff is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chris, what about for you? I've never asked you that question either. Only one other person. Um, uh, I remember the first time I took opiates specifically, I was upstairs in the living room at the King Post house and I just was laying there and I was like, oh my gosh, I am literally going to do this forever. Like yeah. forever and ever. I, how could people go through life after they've experienced this and not do it? And it's, it's kind of interesting how that's what the thought process is. And then my buddy liked to drink with me a lot. Like when we were at hockey tournaments, we would, I mean, we didn't do it to be cool. We drank because we genuinely chased that effect produced you know, both of us ended up being in recovery, but we chased that thing down. And I remember calling him and saying like, Hey man, I'm, I just got my wisdom tea taken out and I've got these, these perk, these Percocets come, come take some with me. And he was like, I will be right over. Cause he had experienced it before. And I think we had talked about it, but I remember him and I went through, you know, um, the second bottle that I got real quick and, and we just hung out all day long and we're just popping them and, breaking them up and snorting them and kind of just every every way that you can do it possible and like we both kind of looked at each other and like we knew that was that was the deal um i didn't tell everybody else but when you meet certain people and you know that they would be cool with that kind of scenario like what you know they would be cool with experimenting or if they had tried it before like you just kind of know so hmm. i just i had certain friends that i knew would be fine with it and i would be like yo i i just came across some some Percocets you want to take some and they'd be like oh of course and then some you just know they wouldn't be down with it so you don't talk to them about it you know right. you can pinpoint those people from from a mile away if you've if you've gotten to know people very well some people are interested in experimenting and some people aren't you know can you tell were you guys sophisticated enough at that time and and maybe not and Christian we'll let you continue your story in a sec but like were you guys sophisticated enough to know who was addicted and who wasn't when you kind of started going through those experiences or was that more, we're just experimenting and some people like it. Some people want to do more than others. I know I'm kind of roundabout right now, but do you kind of get what I'm asking? <laughs> it took a couple of years. Like it took me like a, a full year of taking it on and off. Like I would go through withdrawals and I wouldn't even really know they were withdrawals, but I didn't like chase opiates down every day until I really got out of high school and got into college. And like right after high school, when, when I had more freedom and, and got more access to, you know, stronger opiates, like, like Oxycontin, 
I think that's when I realized who was hooked on it and who wasn't. And I remember calling to, I remember in college, I was like, man, I've been taking pills for a really long time, but I finally feel like I'm like addicted to them and I'm scared and I don't know how to stop. And he was like, Oh, you'll be fine, dude. Cause he never had a problem. He was like, just stop. Like, you'll be okay. Yeah. And I remember telling him like, man, this is where I feel like I, I don't know if I can do this. So hmm. it took a couple of years. Interesting. You do turn into like a bloodhound where you can, you can see it on somebody it's like they're they've got it they've got something like it's it's part of your like you have to be able to do that to support yourself and seek it out wow okay no super helpful i've just that that came to mind and um appreciate you guys talking through that so christian continue continue forward so basically just looked like daily use um i started selling drugs to support my habit a lot of friends started selling drugs. I started finding, you know, more like sorted places and, and people to spend time with. There were like multiple scenarios that you just take a look, you just take a step back and you're like, why am I here right now? Like, how did this happen? You know, like, I remember one instance, I think it was my senior year of high school. I was, I was, and, you know, a few years into, into opiate addiction, and, and I was sitting in an, a, an apartment that was essentially a, a trap house or, like, drug house, you know, and there were probably seven other people there, various ages. Uh, none of us could score that day, and so we're all sitting in, like, this empty apartment, like, dishes in the sink, like, just a mess all just glued to our phones waiting for one of our dealers to hit us up hoping that it's our dealer because then we can rip off everybody else in the room that's waiting you know so we're waiting there for four to six hours on a weekend you know grinding our teeth and i'm like looking over and there's like a couple who's just had a baby together and i'm like looking at the mom like where else could you be right now yeah. You know, like this is, this is so sad. And, and I had so many of those like moments of clarity of like, what is going on, you know? And, and I was, I was able to hide it from my parents for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I got, I finally got caught uh, my senior year by my mom and, and basically Basically, what happened is she, I had been using her debit card to pull out cash, and uh, and she was, like, going through her bank statement, and, like, it just wasn't adding up, and I just saw her, like, getting so frustrated on the computer, and I was just, and, you know, watching her, like, man, like, this, this might finally be the time I was at a breaking point to, like, tell her what's going on, you know, yeah. and, uh, she like approached me about it and I just spilled the beans like hey I've I've been addicted to, to drugs since I was a freshman in high school mm. you know um and and she had no idea what to do oh, wow. and I, I love my mom like I'm a straight up mama's boy <laughs> and uh it, I, we were both lost because I didn't I had no idea that like recovery existed I had no clue how you overcame an addiction 
I, I had nowhere to go with it. Yeah. And so we kind of like, we hit a lot of stumbling points of like, I think what started was like, okay, you have a curfew or you can't leave with a debit card, like just little stuff to kind of try to control it, you know, but on my, the, the street that I grew up on, there was a family down, you know, just a few houses down uh, that, that we were very close to. They had three sons. Um, one of them was a little bit older than me, but had gotten sober at a young age. And it was kind of like he, he was somebody that I always looked up to when I was a kid. And, uh, and he went through like a pretty horrible drug addiction, got sober at 18. And it was like, as he got sober, I started getting high with his friends that were mm. still getting high. So like, he always kind of had like a tab on me and knew what I was up to, but never like confronted me or like tried to persuade me or do anything. But it was one day after like a big blowout fight with my family uh, that I was outside, you know, trying to collect myself and he and his girlfriend came walking down the street and I grabbed him and like spilled it on him. Like, dude, this is everything that's been going on. I know that you have experience, all that stuff. And, uh, and he basically was like, look, I'm going to take you under my wing and, and you're, you're going to get better, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was like the official start to my road to recovery wow. uh, his name was Tyler he's still a really good friend of mine and so basically what that looked like is that I would I'd stay with Tyler most nights of the week or like he'd come hang out during the day this was summer uh, after my senior year of high school and so what would happen is I'd hang out with Tyler all day and we'd do some work and then I'd I'd miserably detox get like a week sober and then relapse and mm-hmm. then I would get caught or my brother would like wrap me out to Tyler and my mom and then I'd miserably detox again and then get sober so that went on all summer and Tyler like did everything that he could to help me but I just like couldn't hear it and and he he would take me to some meetings with some of his his buddies that were sober And I don't know if it was the message in the meetings or just what I picked up on, but I kind of got this idea that sobriety was basically just sitting on your hands. Like that's that's the way I, I looked at it. And the idea that I formed myself was like, to be sober, you stop going to certain places, hanging out with certain people, you go to meetings and you just stick it out the rest of your life. Mm. Like you just stop, you know, that's, that's the way I looked at it. And so I didn't, there wasn't like that summer of, of trying to overcome it. I, there wasn't like a lot of hope for me, you know, and, and my parents, you know, were, were still like pretty oblivious to how, how things should work you know, and so I had convinced them, like, hey, you know, I've, I've done okay this summer, you know, I've had some slips, um, but I think I'm, like, some ready slips. to, like, <laughs> I'm ready to, like, you know, pick my life up and, and go to college, 
that's like the next step and that is going to be a solution it's going to give me fulfillment it's going to work right so i got tyler on board i got mom and dad on board and they're like all right we're going to ship you off to utsa in san antonio you'll be able to get out of houston and just kind of start fresh you know and and everybody thought it was a great idea so 18 years old moving out of out of my house for the first time and I'm off to San Antonio uh, sober, uh, kind of sober, not on opiates at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, I think the first week I was there, I was in a lunch hall and I heard some people talking about Norcos, which are like little hydrocodone pills. And I like scurried my way into the conversation mm-hmm. and like, basically like ended up striking a deal with somebody to get some probably paid three times more than what they're actually worth I was just like so desperate you know what I mean but going to college I had every intention of not doing that it's just like literally I heard somebody say the word and I was on it yeah uh like no thought no regret no no you know worry about consequences and then I ended up, you know, strung out for the entire six months in my oh. first semester of college. And it was a miserable time for me, probably one of the most miserable times for me, just because I I had no resources in San Antonio. Back in Houston, I could sell something or I like new people. But in San Antonio, basically what it looked like was me you know, bumming weed off of my older brother's friends. And they're like, Christian, you're with us all day. Like, why can't you ever like contribute to the weed fund or whatever? (laughs) And then calling my parents every weekend begging for $20, like just $20 to like get right for the weekend and maybe have something to carry through Monday and then stealing you know, TI-84 calculators on campus and pawning them, like just scrounging to like barely, you know what I mean? Barely get anything. And it sucked because I was left, I was defenseless, worthless, not resourceful, just like a bottom feeding drug addict trying to make it through my first semester of college. And it's, it was horrible. And so basically my parents knew what was going on because of me calling for money or just reports probably from my older brother's friends back home because I was in college with some of them. And uh, basically the ultimatum was we'll move you home, but you have to do an intensive outpatient program. Okay. And so that was like, okay, soft pillow to land on. I can go home and, and try all this again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Were you ready? And to do so that? I, Uh, I was very miserable, but here's the thing. And, and like a common thing in my story is like, I never really thought that there would be a solution because the one thing I knew is that when I stopped getting high, I hated my life and I hated the way that I felt and drugs absolutely were a cure for something else that was going on, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, like, it's like I know I hate like how my life is going, but it it the consequences at that point were not outweighing the consequence of being sober without a solution. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, and so I moved back to Houston. A lot of buddies that I got high with prior to going to college had were becoming a lot more successful selling drugs. And so it's like I came back to this environment that it, drugs were a lot more accessible and things, everybody back home had progressed, like for the worst. You know, so I wasn't like coming back to something good when I went, when I moved home to Houston. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in this IOP program and I'm actually like doing good. And I like the people that are running it and we're, you know, doing yoga every time we go and watching movies and doing art therapy. But we never like looked at the steps. The steps were on the wall, but it was never brought up. We were never suggested to go to meetings. It was like, it, I don't know. It, it was, it was strange. Um, but I get into this program and, and I'm doing really well with it. I like write my goodbye letter to drugs and they love it so much that they want me to like come back and share it to, you know, future IOP members, like, and my, I'm enrolled at community college. I'm making decent grades and everything's going good. And so I make it like two months and life is manageable and I feel okay, you know? Yeah. So I was probably, I think I was 18 or maybe 19 at this point. And uh, what ended up happening is I was at a buddy's house. They had just gotten a lot of, opiates and that they were planning to sell and there was like a question on the table of if it was real or not or they had gotten ripped off and all my buddies like knew that like hey we need to keep christian away from opiates and all this good stuff but i was like guys like i don't have a tolerance why don't i just try a little bit and i'll tell y'all if it's good or not you know yeah <laughs> and now i have this amazing opportunity to prove to my friends and to prove to myself hey I have two months sober I can do just a little bit and not completely destroy my life afterwards mm. and uh you know I remember taking that's a the mental bit. obsession that we talk about all the time is your mind truly yeah. even after even after two months of being sober because you didn't get through any any work where you had a spiritual experience or a perception change your mind told you, this is a great opportunity to prove to everyone else around you that I actually am okay and I can control this stuff. So mm -hmm. like everything is going to be okay, even though time and time again in the past, you, your experience showed that every time you put it in your body, you get this allergy that sets you off to the races and you can't stop. Yeah. If if my parents were in the room, I would have been able to convince them that it was okay. That's how sure I was wow. that it wasn't going to be a problem, you know. And, of course, I take it, and when it hits me, my first thought was, like, God, like, why have I not been doing this the past two months, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And 30 days after taking it, I was down to weighing 127 pounds, completely strung out, broke, like physically in horrible shape. And it just, just crumbled yeah. me. Like yeah. I, like as soon as it hit me that one day, 
I I was like texting people like for the next the next hit or whatever you know like it was immediate loss of control and it had also progressed that two months that I was sober I became a worse drug addict wow. <laughs> while wow. sober you know crazy and uh, and so that let that led to me uh, checking into re a an inpatient rehab uh, like right after my 19th birthday and uh, the same same treatment center that Chris, me and Chris were actually in there together. That's, so, that's where we met. And we actually checked out together, too. Which I'll let you we checked out story. together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was back in 2011. And uh, man, when I when I checked in uh, to treatment, uh, I was with my mother and my mom during the intake process like lost it like tears like could not hold it back and I I hated like seeing her like that and I had made so many promises to do better you know and it's just like I was so tired of it at that point yeah um you know and so I get into this program and I am fully convinced that my life sucks uh i am worthless like i cannot control my drug addiction i cannot i cannot stay sober on my own all these like step one questions like check 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 like i've got it you know what i mean and then come to find out you know the solution uh is is turning your will and your life over to a higher power and I was just kind of like, man, like my parents are paying a lot of money for me to be here. And like, that's it. Like, that's what Mm -hmm. y'all sell. This is what this is. You know, like it just, I was like, this is like, not right. There has to be a logical solution, you know? Yeah. Um, And so while I sat in treatment for 45 days and saw people like Chris, who had probably hit further bottoms, like, just absolutely like lighting up in there and doing good and and getting it I sat around questioning this God idea and that the solution was something that I couldn't necessarily like put my finger on and and so I thought like may you know there I, maybe if I just don't go back to Houston and I hang around sober people like all these old ideas I had of just like muscling through the first six months and then just never drink, like just being miserable. That's what I thought was like would work. And I wasn't hearing what was going on in there. The one good decision I made was to get a sponsor. And it was Mm -hmm. this, this dude that I would see at outside meetings, angry Jewish guy, but like also just like the sweetest guy ever. (laughs) Uh, Like he'd come up to me every meeting and like, give me a big hug and be like, dude, like come sit next to me in the meeting you know, and I ended up asking him to sponsor me. And it it was very like, that was very profound because I truly feel like that guy saved my life. Um, His name's Jay. I I highly doubt he would care that I'm mentioning him, but it, it like, I still to this day, like have to remember how important it was that Jay was 
like willing to welcome me the way that he did yeah because I was the guy at meetings when they'd bust us out to these meetings that was like kicking rocks in the back like anxious and miserable and would have never spoke up I would have never spoken up you know but like Jay like grabbed me and was like let's do this you know and like that saved my life for sure and uh did um really quickly um not to interrupt but Chris do you remember Christian like in that way oh for sure Christian and I became fast friends in rehab and I remember I think he said he was scared of me because I looked really like rough when I (laughs) got in there but um Chris Chris we ended up when he came in yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I was I was um I was I was looking pretty rough and but anyways like I think Christian and I like we kicked it off really quickly and and I never pushed Christian to like I never tried to be like, dude, you know, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this until I started experiencing some freedom. Because by the time I got out of treatment, it was, it was 35 days in there. I had already gone through the first nine steps and I had already experienced some pretty significant freedom. And I think I remember being like, dude, Christian, you have got to do this. It's like, you have no idea what you're missing out on. And I've, I've been through treatment twice already and it was nothing like this. And this is like the best place you could possibly be because they're doing it the right way. Yeah. And yeah, he was, he, I remember Christian, you were open to it and you were, you were like semi bought in. You were never rebellious against it in any form or fashion, but like you never fully bought in and dove in to the point to where you got to experience freedom through getting through the work. I mean, it was, it was, kind of one of those things where you had one foot in and one foot out and then inevitably you ended up using again and and yeah me and Chris hit it off I remember like what sealed it for me is that Chris would give me the key to his room so that I could go take naps during group because if they see that you're not (laughs) in group they'll go to your room and try to find you Mm. so Chris would be in group and I would be in his room sleeping so they didn't know where to find me little did I know that probably wasn't conducive to me getting better but (laughs) it's okay It, it worked out luckily I was still a pretty sick puppy yeah yeah, but not to. I'm a loyal smoke. friend. Uh, yes, you are. Yeah, he is. He is. But Chris, Chris was like a shining example of like what can happen if you mm. fully surrender. And I was able to to witness that firsthand. Yeah. You know, but here's here's what happened is like I got hung up on steps two and three where you have to start considering the God idea and be open to it and and proceed with the work. And I watched everybody, you know, all these other people like get it. And I, I was just stuck on it. And what happened was I got out of treatment. Me and Chris left the same day, went to the same sober house. And I still woke up every morning upset that there weren't a bottle of pills next to my bed to change the way that I felt immediately Mm. upon awakening. Mm -hmm. Like I was still, it was still on me. I was still obsessing about it. And we would have these weekly house meetings in sober living where like, they're like, Christian, like you've been on your four step now for four weeks. Like, 
you know, and I'm like, oh, like I, I'm starting this job at Whataburger down the street. Like I'm going to get to it, you know, and, and just miserable every yeah. day. Yeah. And so at, at some point I ended up convincing the guy that owned our house that I need to go make an amends trip in Houston. And he's like, all right, I'll let you go, but you got to bring like a sober buddy with you. So this guy gets roped into like driving me to Houston to make amends. And um, two-ish months out of treatment, I didn't have 90 days sober yet, but I've been out of treatment for a little bit. I'm going back to Houston for the first time. And I remember thinking on the way there, like, I can't wait to show my parents, like, how good I've been doing and to, like, maybe run into some old friends and, like, they'll be able to see that, like, there's a way out. You know, like, I felt so good about the decisions I had made and the two months that I was away and all the new people I had met that I was just, like, excited to, like, let everybody know that it was working you know granted I was still on step four and miserable you know but that was my intention of going to Houston my intention was let's show everybody how good I'm doing you know and then like as soon as I get into the city limits like a switch flips and I'm on my phone texting a buddy like hey do you have something that's not going to show up on a drug test Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like I don't, it's like, uh, it's like I was just absent from the decision-making process there, you know, and then the whole trip turned into scoring and figuring out a way to like not get kicked out of the sober house back in Kerrville. Yeah. And so what ended up happening is I, I scored a bunch of value off of a buddy and the idea was I'll go back to the sober house, take my drug test and then I can get high. And so I get back to the sober house with these volume in my pocket. And the house manager is like, Hey, we're out of drug tests. We're going to, we'll drug test you first thing in the morning. And I couldn't even wait until the morning (laughs) to get high, Yeah, you know? Uh, And so I like got belligerent, failed that drug test. Chris saw me like falling all over the house. I tried to fight the house manager. Mm. and like got got kicked out you know and then the guy that owned the house was like yo like I've got another house that you can go to you can start fresh and I was like man like I can't I can't get it off of me like I I I I love that you're offering that to me but I'm not ready so I packed my stuff went to Houston Uh, got high for a week and then, and then ran out of resources and came back to Kerrville this time at a different house. And so then it's kind of the same story where like, I almost put another two months together. This time I get through a fourth and fifth step, but I'm still weird about the God thing and not surrendered around it. And, uh, you know, I get to where I have like two months sober and things are starting to get good again. Like, you know, girls are starting to text me and that part of my life had been absent for years you know so I was like happy and going to meetings every day and started working you know like not a cloud on the horizon uh and so I was I was on the porch at at the sober house and a guy were you know we're telling war stories to each other and a guy just says the word morphine 
and I felt like my body went into like physical withdrawal, even though I hadn't touched it in two months. Wow. And I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. And I remember calling my sponsor at the time. He didn't answer. I called the guy that owned the house. He didn't answer. I called Chris and I was like, Hey, like, dude, I don't know what's going on, but like I, my body is screaming at me to go get high and it's not going away. I don't know what to do about it. Hmm. And Chris is like, you know, pray, meditate. I can be over there tomorrow morning. And I was like, okay. So I, that night barely get any sleep and I wake up the next morning and it's on me. Like I can't get it off. Hmm. And so I pack my stuff and head to Houston. You know, I remember listening to Chris's voicemails on the way to Houston. Like, dude, I know what you're doing, you know, and just being like, I don't want to do this, but I can't turn around. It's like being possessed, you know. Um, Do you remember what I said to you in your van before you left, uh, like the second time? What'd you say? I, all I said was, hey, go find out if you're a real drug addict because you're not convinced and promise me the only thing you won't do is use a needle. And I was like, just yeah. don't let your, yourself get to the point where you use a needle and come back before you get to that point. Because if you are a real drug addict, you're going to eventually do it. And you were like, all right, I promise. Here's here's what happened is I, I got to Houston and and immediately went to to my spot and and got high and got some opiates in my system and it was the first time in my life where opiates could i couldn't get the monkey off my back you know what i mean like i got extremely high but it was not fixing that horrible feeling that I had been trying to run from my whole life and it was the first time that it didn't work and I found myself in this place of like I can either like if drugs aren't going to work I can either kill myself or get or like find the next thing that's going to work you know what I mean and so then I took a few days to make absolute sure that the drugs weren't going to be the solution and then and then packed my stuff and headed back to Kerrville. Mm. And uh, when I got back to Kerrville, the dude that owned the house just sat me down and he was like, man, like I was exactly where you are, you know, when I was 19. And it's cool that you're going to meetings every day and talking to girls and working a job and hanging around sober people and living in a sober house. And that's all good stuff, but look at what just doing that has done for you. Right. You know what I mean? And it and it finally like hit me like I can't just not do drugs. I can't just change the people that I hang out with and go to a meeting every day. I have to like fix the actual problem. Right. You know what I mean? What I've been running from my whole life. Yeah. And uh, it, I had this like serious revelation where I it just finally clicked that I had to find a real solution, something that was going to work. And I, I dove into the step work at that point. And then yeah. I, I sat down with the same sponsor. 
And when we got to steps two and three and the God idea, I, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time on it because he knew my thoughts and they hadn't changed much. The difference is I was willing to proceed with the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so I got through a fourth and fifth step, started making amends and then less than 30, I went and made a successful amends trip in Houston. Chris came with me. And uh, less than 30 days sober, I was I was at the at the halfway house, and uh, I got a random call from a dude that I had been in IOP with in Houston back in the day, and he was like, "Man, like my life sucks. My you know girlfriend kicked me out. I'm strung out. Like all this stuff." And I was like, dude, like, here's what's happened to me since then. Like, I've been in Kerrville. Now I have, like, almost 30 days sober. I'm on, you know, steps 10 and 11 and 12. And, like, you should come out here. I'll get you into a sober house and all this stuff. And we, like, got all excited. And then I hung up the phone. And I had a burning bush spiritual experience Hmm. um, where, like, I felt like I was on a hallucinogen. And I, it all of a sudden came full circle for me where like, I finally understood. And because of the way that I felt, I immediately believed in God. Like it was the strangest. And it lasted all night where I was just like glowing. And I think it was just like the fact that a spiritual experience happened and all the suffering that I had gone through in my life to finally understand that number one, it's going to be okay. And number two, this is why I went through all of that. Like it just all made sense to me in one moment. And that is what I've chased since then nine years later is like, I had a spiritual experience the first time I helped somebody. And if I do any step work for myself today, it's so that I can better help other people. And that's what I do. You know, like if if my life sucks, it's because I'm self, it's because I've dug a hole, you know, and so that's just been my solution that has worked is helping others. Um, Yeah. And what's happened through time, I mean, I'm reading the history of of the program and and going through like, you know, what, what all transpired and in the thirties, when all this stuff started, it was really important for people to go through the work quickly. And what Christian was experiencing was what I experienced the first two times I tried to get sober. And it was, let's kind of like do a couple of things here and there and let's do a little bit of step work and let's take our time. And then all of a sudden the real alcoholic and real drug addict is off to the races and doesn't know how they got there. And the ones that are actually willing, if they're given the proper, proper guidance and they're, and they're allowed to go through the step work quickly and then help someone else. Once you get to that point where you help that other person, everything comes full circle and makes sense. And you no longer have that mental obsession where you tell yourself you can do it like a normal person again. And a lot of people are told that they have to go through the work slowly and they're held back from experiencing a complete change in in perspective on life. And it's sad because it's, you know, I'm not blaming other people for this. Um, a lot of people are just doing what they were showed, shown, but I almost died trying to get through this step work because I was straight up told 
that I was not allowed to go through the work uh, quickly. I would have to take a year to go through it. And I, and I almost didn't make it, you know, and it kind of all comes full circle with what Christian's talking about where he never really did it, never really did it. And then finally he had an experience where he helped someone else after getting through the step work and his life changed in that one moment, you know? So cool. And, you know, when I look back, I, I don't think that the God idea and steps two and three were the problem. I, I think the problem is that I, I had this reservation that I wasn't willing to let go of that basically like if all else fails, opiates will work. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like I can, you know, do all this stuff to like try to get better, but like if it if it doesn't work, opiates will. Right. And when I had that experience of opiates not working, that's when I was like, it's either suicide or do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. You said you're nine years sober now too? Yeah, nine years sober. And man, mm-hmm. like I I can I can like get myself to the point of tears if I like think of everything that's happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I've had friends not make it, you know, friends die trying to get sober, friends die that never even had a chance at getting sober that lived in Houston. And I just like think of like what they've missed out on. You know what I mean? Like life, all I wanted was like to like have a sense that things are okay and and to have like the power to like be the person that I wanted to be that's what I wanted and I could have never obtained that on my own like no matter how bad I wanted to be a good boyfriend a good son a good employee a good student a, you know like I couldn't do that sober or not it no matter how hard I tried I was not capable of it on my own because you know, your mind kept you in life, fear, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And selfish selfishness. And yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off, you know, sober or high. And when I look at like what's happened over nine years being sober, it's like, man, like I couldn't have asked for anything more. Like I'm engaged to a woman that I love who's amazing. You know, you're I have a father now. Best for, father now yeah yeah father to an amazing daughter uh the best friends I could possibly imagine on a career path that's great like I'm free to do whatever I want to do yeah I can do anything and it's I just never thought that that would be the case I thought that I would always be white knuckling life you know uh and that's that's just not the truth you can you once you surrender and devote your life to helping others you can do whatever you want to do you know like the the possibilities are endless so talk about like where's your head at now and and how are things going and like what we ask quite a bit is you know what keeps you motivated to continuing forward you've talked about helping others but what else like especially for those you know, who might've been in the same position that you were, or might be in the same position you were, like, how would you give more portrayal of, of the way that your life is now? I, I started, I started valuing things differently. You know, um, 
I, as, as like my sobriety has progressed, like what I value is like where, where I can find spirituality. Hmm. And what that started as was like a good meeting, right? Or like meeting with a sponsee or, you know what I mean? Uh, like not being a piece of shit son to my parents. Hmm. Like that's like what was good. But as, as things have gone on, it's like I can find spirituality in pretty much everything that I do. Being able to finally graduate college was a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, like being able to actually show up in a relationship, um, being able to travel or like go to places and not be tempted. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I just I, all of a sudden I had this sense of power to where I was truly free. And that's what I value most in life is freedom, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just felt I was just so scared that I was always going to be chained down by avoiding temptations um and and you know what I mean avoiding things and that's just not the case like I I got sober and I got truly free that's what everybody has to look forward to yeah absolutely Christian you started talking I mean before we we recorded here you were talking more about like kind of the mental side of things and I would love to know um pivoting just a bit but how important is dealing with the mental side of things alongside the steps of recovery? I'd like to kind of share my story on it. And the last thing that I want my story to do is like lead people to believe that it's a symptom of being sober and that like, oh, I have mental health issues. So my sobriety is going to be miserable. That's not Mm -hmm. the case. For Mm -hmm. me, it was like completely separate. I was going through something that going to a meeting and talking to my sponsor about was not going to help. Whereas everything, every other issue I've had, a spiritual solution has worked. Like this was a chemical imbalance in which only a medication would help, you know? And uh, I, I think with what I went through, it's absolutely vital that you get that looked at in early recovery, because if I didn't have as strong of a foundation as I did when I went through some mental health struggles, I don't think I would have made it. And, I, and I'm also bringing this up just because like 40% of drug addicts have mental health issues. So I, I'd love if it ended up helping somebody else because it, when I went through it, it was very hard. Like I was talking to Chris through it, John through everybody. Like I was yeah. open with everybody, but finding somebody to relate yeah. was almost impossible. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, which is crucial, it, especially us drug addicts, like we had to find another drug addict, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so here's, here's basically what happened is, as, as I've already said, I had anxiety prior to my drug use, through my drug use, and it was a huge issue when I first got sober. Mm-hmm. But I was also resistant to medication because I wanted it was like an ego thing of like, I want to be a hundred percent clean if I'm going to be sober. Like, I don't want to attribute it to a medication that I'm taking. Like I want to like do this legit, you know, which is, is a naive way of looking at it. And so what happened was I, it's like the anxiety, the way that I look at it is like the anxiety that I felt my entire life uh, was like a drug 
that I was not in control of taking. It was just put into my body. So like a situation would provoke it and I would get anxious. The good thing was I knew what it felt like. I knew what the symptoms were, racing heart, shivery hands, like being closed off and confused or whatever. And then I knew the life cycle of it. I knew when it would go away. I knew that there would be like a, like a moment where I could breathe again and feel good. But what happened at like around year eight of me being sober is it it came back uh, seemingly out of nowhere. And it was a new drug that I was not familiar with. It, it was like the anxiety that I had before, but a hundred times worse. And it came out of nowhere and I didn't recognize it. I didn't know when it would go away. I didn't know what was bringing it on the feeling was very unfamiliar and what the kind of like the peak of it of it starting was I was in college and we were giving presentations and and, you know I'm going to be up next for my presentation and I'm watching kids like stumble and and be nervous giving a presentation I remember thinking like oh like I'm so glad that I'm not like that anymore like just so like egotistical And then I got up there and I had the worst panic attack I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, like I I pulled off the presentation, but this girl was like, hey, I was like sitting close to you and like your body was vibrating. Like, I don't know how to explain it. And it felt like a train was running through my body. And uh, I went home that that day and like told the girl that I was dating about it. And it was a very hopeless feeling because it was like I knew that I was about to go down a long road with this. Like I knew that it was like now I know that my body is capable of that type of horrible fear and emotion and I, it's going to be very hard to close that door now that it's open, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it, it went on for six months where I'm having panic attacks every day. And I landed in like what would normally be like a peak life moment. I'm at a buddy's wedding in Mex- central Mexico, just had one of the best weekends of my entire life. And I booked a late flight out that day and everybody else was gone. And I was sitting in the hotel room like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Like I, it might've been darker than my drug addiction. Just the amount of suffering that I had gone through the six months leading up to that with the having panic, having a panic attack multiple times a day, like it drains your body you know and I just lost hope lost hope to like I my sex drive was gone like my body and chemical makeup was like completely out of whack and I was in that hotel room after everybody had left and uh was either gonna jump out the window or call a therapist which I was very for some reason like very not against but like felt so weak doing because I was my recovery was so strong and I had so like I had this solution that had worked so well and it was just so hard to admit that I was defeated you know and uh 
and I went and met with this therapist and I, and I remember telling him like, I'm, I'm not proud of where I am. And that was so hard to say out loud mm-hmm. that like, I am nine years sober. I'm in a relationship that I'm enjoying and, but I am not okay. And I'm not proud of that, yeah. you know? And, uh, and so the therapist was helpful, yada, yada, but, but what ended up actually working is the, the therapy taught, gave me a lot of bandages to put on and I was able to, to white knuckle it for another year, basically of daily panic attacks and just being chemically off balance. Oh my gosh. And, uh. I, one day, this, this woman that I work with that I, I love her, her name, her name's Elizabeth. And, uh, like, she's very easy to talk to, but also has a very good understanding of mental health. And one day I was going to play golf with Chris and John and I was driving and I like, was like at a hopeless point again of, you know, now it's been a year and a half of daily panic attacks, not getting to the point where I feel like I'm, I could die if I drive a car and pass out. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm going to be one of those people that's stuck in their house because of a mental illness. That's what I was like. That's what I was headed towards. It was crazy. So I called Elizabeth and I was like, look, I started bawling and I was like, I need help. Like, I don't know who to turn to. I don't know who can help me. My therapist is great, but it's like only so much. And she was like, you need to see a doctor. Like you, this is not you. This is not your fault. This is like, you you have an illness and you're sick and you have to get treated, you know? And I was like, you're right. And so I went to go see this doctor and this doctor is like in her eighties old, but like just one of the coolest people I've ever met and very knowledgeable. And so I tell her my story from like childhood to present and everything that's gone on with recovery and my anxiety and yada, yada, and like all this stuff. And uh, she was like, you know why, like, nothing has helped you before? And she's like, you haven't been properly diagnosed with Mm -hmm. what you have. And I was like, what do I have? And she was like, you have OCD. Really? And I was like, oh. And she started, like, pointing out these, like, different uh, symptoms. And, like, a lot of people look at OCD as, like, the guy that has to flip the light switch, yeah. like, 10 times to, like, be able to go to bed or whatever. That's that's one, like, arm of it. But there's, like, these other arms of it of extremely intrusive thoughts that can be, like, violent or suicidal or, like, you get stuck on something that's triggering a panic attack and it's like a loop in your head that you can't you can't shut it off like it just goes while you're asleep you know like you have no control over it and uh and she was like yeah like you've been miss you've been diagnosed with anxiety your whole life and you are like a textbook true ocd person (laughs) and i was like holy shit and and like then we could start like actually fixing the problem you know and so it, it, it's the same thing with recovery is like people get misdiagnosed all the time 
you know, they, they show up to a therapist or whatever with like a horrible drug addiction and like nobody's able to be like, hey, this is exactly what's going on with you and this is what you have to do to fix it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and so it's the same story, but I just think it's valuable to tell it because I don't, I, I think that mental health stuff is stigmatized the same way drug addiction is. Yeah. I think a lot of drug addicts suffer with it too. I think it brought me to my knees just as bad as my drug addiction, wow. where like I was nine years sober and not, and not okay in the least bit you know, um, and, and then I finally, I finally found a solution and, and got treated for it. And, and like, um, you know, it, it may rear its head at some later point in my life or whatever, but like, it was such a powerful experience to feel like I was never going to face hardship in my life again. And to go through something that, that tore me apart like right. that again and and then overcome it I think is very powerful yeah. you know yeah um sure. so I, I just I hope that like anybody else that's sober or not sober but like you you're like something's off like it it's not your fault you know what I mean like you 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 might just have an illness right. that has to be treated and your sponsor might not be able to treat it right. you know and, and it was hard for me to swallow that pill Yep. What, um, how do you manage that day to day now? So I know what to look for now. I'm, I'm on a medication that, that has like my brain chemistry back. And it was crazy when I started this medication, like not to like just throw it all out there, but like I, all of a sudden, like the, the chemicals in your brain are important for everything. Yeah. Like I had an appetite again. I could, my mm-hmm. sex drive was back. I could, I could play golf better. Like my golf game, like got better. And then I was able to go to places, like do things that would trigger me like driving. And even if I had a crazy thought, I didn't fully believe it. It, yeah. it didn't like completely like ruin my day or or whatever it's it's like once the the chemical issue was addressed i was able to once again reason and have logic like a normal person wow where like before my chemical the the chemical imbalance was adjusted i could not reason like a normal person like christian like why do you why are you so freaked out about that like why does it cause panic like i don't know i don't want it to you know Right. right So it, it's like it gave me the ability to think rationally again. You sure. know what I mean? It, it's weird. Yeah, for sure. So, but listen, thank you for sharing that story. And I completely agree with you. Like the mental health thing is so important. It's fascinating stuff. It really is. Yeah, no, it, it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy. This is the first time that like I've, you know, fully told that story. And so I'm, I am grateful to have y'all in a, a platform to, say it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for doing it here. It's very important to continue the storytelling and pumped that you were able to tell your story. Thank you. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, listen, we'll wrap today, but I can't wait for uh, our listeners to get to know you and for you to keep doing all the great work that you're doing um, on yourself and for others. 
Life is good. Thanks. Life is good. <laughs> yeah, it really is. All right. All right, brothers. Talk soon. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. Right, See thanks you guys. guys. Bye. Bye.